Our passage today is Matthew 25. If you would turn with me to that passage. And you'll, you'll recognize some similarities with the scripture that Neil read a few minutes ago because it's basically the same parable that Jesus told in two different contexts. I wanted us to have the flavor of both parables, so I asked him to read the same one. So you'll, you'll hear some similarities as we go through the sermon this morning. I want to invite you to the concert of prayer tonight. Uh, some of the elders will be leading parts of that, and we'll have a, we've asked a couple of missionaries to send us updates, and so we'll have a, a short a minute or two video from a couple of missionaries who can tell us what to be praying for for them. It's good to put a face to the prayer cards that we have out in the north exit. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 25, and we're finishing up uh, today the uh, series on parables that Jeff has been preaching. This is the parable of the talents. Let's look at God's holy and inerrant word. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came up and brought the five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. And see, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, so I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. And see, you have what's yours. But his master answered and said to him, Were you wicked and lazy slave? You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in a bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent away from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Throw out the worst of slave into the outer darkness, and the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Let's bow together and pray. Father, as we come before your word this morning, I really pray you'll help us to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, like the Bereans who listened to Paul, they, they weighed out what he said with Scripture. And Father, I pray that that's true this morning, that we weigh out whatever we hear in any setting that's being taught in the name of Christ, that we weigh it out with the Scriptures, that we discern what's true, what needs to be laid aside, And then, Father, help us when we see your word to us and your truth. Father, give us grace to pursue it. 
Lord, bless this time as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the sermon, the, uh, the passage we read is very much straightforward and to the point. It can be a very short sermon. Jesus is coming back. He's entrusted you with certain talents and gifts. What are you going to do with them? Amen? Let's pray. <laughs> As you read it, a couple of things come to mind that you, that you can't, can't avoid. Jeff has, uh, in his last couple of sermons, has said he doesn't want to guilt us into obedience. Well, what do you do with a text where the master calls a servant and says, you didn't use what I gave you. You're a servant of mine, but you didn't use what I gave you. So, yes, just cast him into outer darkness. Is this parable teaching that we can lose our salvation? And is this really a picture of Jesus, a hard master who reaps where he doesn't sow and expects us to go out and do the same thing? So how are we going to approach it today? Well, the first thing we want to look at is how do you interpret parables? The second thing is discerning what, what does it teach? How, what are the ways you could apply it, that people have applied it? Then last of all, what's God saying to us as a congregation and to us as individuals? How do we take what God has for us and live it out on a day-to-day basis? Well, that's where we're headed. So I invite you to, to come along with us. First of all, how do we interpret the parable as we listen to it? One thing you learn in, in biblical interpretation is there, there are various figures of speech in the Bible, or various forms of literature, poetry, historical narrative, there are things like personification, where David says, the mountains are going to burst out in song. Well, I've never heard a mountain sing yet, and I lived in them. But he, he communicates a truth using a figure of speech. And a parable is a form of literature. And, uh, in this biblical interpretation, they say, when you come to a parable, look for the central meaning. And then a lot of the details are going to be the backdrop for that central meaning. So the question for us is, what does Jesus want us to take away from this parable? What is the central meaning? One way to find out is to look at the context. Why did he tell the parable? We get some idea back in Matthew 24, where it says, uh, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? When the, the temple is destroyed and all. When are these things going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're asking, well, when, when's the end going to come? And Jesus tells them a series of parables about the coming of the kingdom. The foolish virgins that go out that Jeff talked about last week. This time he's saying, it's not going to come soon. But while you're waiting, use what I gave you. Invest what I've left with you. If you look back in the uh, passage that Neil read earlier today, which is, you, you'll notice a lot of similarities in that passage. The uh, number of people are different. He calls 10 servants, gives them each 10 minas instead of talents. But if you look, a lot of that is verbatim with what we just read. The wicked servant says, I know you're a master who reaps where you did not sow. Identical. Uh, he takes away from the one who didn't have and gives it to the one who did. Identical that there's a similar meaning that the backdrop is a little different. Notice why he told it. Beginning of, verse, of uh, chapter 19 of Luke <clears throat> is the story of Zacchaeus. 
the rich man who was in the crowd, and he couldn't make out just who Jesus was, so he climbed up a tree to watch, and Jesus looked up and saw him up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm, I'm going to stay at your house. And all the people started grumbling and said, what? You're going to the home of a sinner? And Zacchaeus heard it. He must have been cut to the heart. And, and he says, hey, half of all I have, I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I'll repay them four times. And Jesus turns to him and says, today salvation has come to this house. He's a child of Abraham. And he ends his comments by saying, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then right after that, when he'll begin reading, it says, while they were listening to these things about Jesus coming to seek and save the lost, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell, tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So they're saying, God, when is all this going to happen? And Jesus has just talked about eternal life. And this parable, I think, puts the two together. They expect when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's going to usher in the kingdom. That's part of what the triumphal entry was about. People were laying palm branches before the king. They were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And Jesus, when are you going to do this? In this parable, Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not right now. You are. I'm leaving you with some talents, some riches, and I want you to invest those. And you'll make a difference in the world around you. And then I'll come back and the kingdom will be here. And we'll see Christ as we've been seen and know him as we've been known. And he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's the context. Jesus is coming back, and in the process, we need to be ready. We need to be about his business while he's gone. But I don't want to leave that question hanging about what he did with a faithless servant. Does that mean that we can lose our salvation? To me, asking not to, to be careful not to build a theology on part of the backdrop. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you look at various passages, for example, in John six thirty seven. Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he's given me, I lose nothing, but raise him up on the last day. You don't need to worry that Jesus is going to come back and say, well, I know you're saved by faith, but because you didn't perform well enough, you're out of here. No, it's not going to happen. In fact, he talks about this. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, where he talks about having laid a foundation in Jesus Christ. And he says that people will come after him and build on that foundation some with gold and silver, some with wood and stubble. And he says, when Christ comes back, all of our work is going to be tried by fire, in a sense. And some of it, he said, is going to be burned up. It's, we've invested in things with our lives that really don't matter. But he says, all of his children will get into heaven. Though some is through a fire. They'll, they'll get there with nothing to show for their efforts on earth. And some will come having accomplished a lot for the kingdom. None will be lost, 
But some of our works, so much we do in life that really don't matter, isn't it? But we invest our lives in it. And Jesus tells us to be aware of how we're spending our time and our resources and our, even our, our, our money. So don't think that this teaches that you can lose your salvation. In fact, if you look back in Matthew in Luke 19, another reason I had, had Neil read it, at the very end of the parable, realize who it is that's cast into outer darkness. As the king went away in that parable, tell him the parable, the citizens sent a delegation after him begging that he not be their king. And it's those citizens who rejected his kingship who were cast into darkness, not the slave. There's that huge difference. I believe that reflects the rest of the, of the Bible's narrative that, no, you can't lose your salvation. But make sure you invest your time and efforts into something that counts for eternity. So what is it we're called to invest? What are those talents? Well, in, in biblical terms, a talent was about 70, 72 pounds of gold or silver. So what the master has done in this parable is to call three slaves before him and give one the equivalent today of about eight, $8 million dollars and another about $4 million, and the other about $1 million, and says, invest these. Now, in Luke's telling, he gives them 10 denarii, which is a day's wages. A different amount. The principle's the same, even though the backdrop differs. What do you do with what God gives to you? We've seen the context involves changed life. Some people take the text, and there are three ways that I've seen the text applied. One is in terms of economics and money. Uh, R.C. Sproul had preached a sermon on both of these. And I, R.C., I, when I got dressed this morning, I said, now, R.C., I took a class from Reform from R.C. on a minister's dress, believe it or not. And he said, you know, wear your navy coat. And so I looked down, make sure my pants. I respect him highly. But he preached two sermons on this, ta- on this passage in Luke. And he used the passage to defend capitalism. It's all about money or mostly about money. Does it teach private ownership? I guess it does. The, the master owned what he had, and he entrusted it to his servants. There's no doubt about that. But Jesus talks about giving $8 million to a slave, and the apostles listening to it have left everything to follow Jesus. Do you think that John nudges Matthew and says, I wonder if he's going to give me the $8 million. I don't think so. I think that's either something maybe a little bit different that's being taught here. It's not just about money. So what else, what else did Jesus give us besides the resources we have? We know everything we have is from his hand. Well, when I preached a few, uh, few weeks ago or a couple of months ago, we covered Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, it says that when, uh, verse 7, but each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. When he ascended on high, he led captives a coast of hap- he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And those gifts, he goes on to say, are what we use to build up the body of Christ. That the gifts of encouragement, of teaching, speaking the truth to one another in love, hospitality, leadership. And he says, as we exercise those gifts, the whole body is built up to the full measure of Christ in his maturity. So God's goal is that we use the gifts he gave us as a church in each other's lives so that we all grow together and mature. 
Now, since I preached that a few weeks ago, you probably already applied that, haven't you? Of course. Well, we, we apply everything we hear. I wish. Too many times I find in my own life, I fall back into coping mechanisms. I've, I've lived in rut my life, and it's easy to stay in that rut instead of hearing what God has to say and say, you know, maybe I ought to go this direction for a while. So how are you using your gifts? If God's giving you the gift of encouragement, are you using it? I walked into a restaurant a couple of days ago, and as I was walking in, the waitress opened the door, and another gentleman was walking out, and she was wearing a metal cross, a pretty big one. The gentleman looked at her and said, that cross ain't going to save you. He walked on out. And I looked at her and said, he's right. That little piece of metal ain't going to save you, but the Savior who died on that cross can save you. And she gave a sigh of relief and said, I'm so glad you walked in when you did. (laughs) We never know. We never know if we just say a word of encouragement or stop and listen. We never know how God's going to use it. But we trust He will. Our challenge is to be open to what God wants to do in and through us and just have the liberty to to, to sometimes let go of our uh, inhibitions the good inhibitions, and simply do what we're called to do. Not only applies to, to, to members, but I was thinking this week of a, a deacons who are entrusted with the finances of the church. They're investing in the kingdom as they use them. I was thinking of the elders who have been entrusted with the flock. The elders are leading a congregation, and it's an investment God's left with them. How are they planning and what are they doing with this congregation? We, we all have something we're entrusted with. The question is, how do we use it to see the furtherance of the kingdom of God? The, the last way I've seen it applied that I think may be what we need today is another treasure the Bible talks about. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that we have a treasure. Now, if somebody gives you a treasure that you want to give to somebody else, how would you wrap it up? When I was in high school, my first job was at Gateway Mall. That was before Walmart. And they had a furniture department, clothing department, grocery department, and so forth. And one Christmas, I worked in the clothing department. We were wrapping presents. And I learned the different types of ribbons and different types of bows. And you got to where you, you, you want to wrap a present in such a way that when somebody sees it, they can't wait to open it. Somehow the package reflects the contents, and you, you, you can't help but wonder, what's in that package? If God has given you a treasure and you want to give it to somebody else, how would you wrap it up? Well, some people wrap it up in a tract. When I was little and raised in a church, giving out tracts was a really big thing. The amazing thing is, God has chosen to wrap the gift of eternal life and the teaching of the gospel. He's chosen to wrap it up in, in you. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to spend a little bit of time in that. 
chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Why would you wrap up something as important as the gospel in somebody like me? Go figure. Or Paul. Paul described himself as a murderer, somebody who persecuted Christians and killed them. Why did God entrust him with the news that would change a world for Christ? Why does God wrap it up in you and send you out into the world? Well, he says here, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be from God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in our bodies the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. He's saying God wrapped it up in an earthen vessel so that people can see it's not you. It's God that's at work. I think Peter captures this in his uh, epistle when he says, as you live your life before the world, always be ready to give a reason for the hope within you. God at work. Now, when do we most need hope? When is it most evident that we have hope? When times are bad. When everything's going great, everybody's happy, nobody really cares about a hope, you know, you've, things are going great, the world's fantastic around you. But how about when you go through tough times like pandemics and upheavals in our culture, and suddenly people are grasping for straws. You want peace? I'll take this vacation. You want, don't want to worry? We'll play this video game. Take your mind off everything. And we're grabbing for things in the darkness to try to satisfy our longings of the heart. And the world needs to know that Christ has shown into the darkness and given a light that's beyond anything we can grasp for here. Hope is the ribbon that wraps up the present that people see. When they look at your life, do they see hope? They see hope. What is your hope placed in? Is it placed in something in this world, people in this world? Or do they see a hope that's rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ? Do they see a life that's oriented around Him? Do they see a peace that comes from having been in His presence? Do they see a joy that reflects the salvation you received and the evidence of being a, a child of God? Now, every day as a Christian, it's not going to be marvelous. I've gone through clinical depression, and I've, I've been there where you're, the world is black. But the Bible says when you receive help in times like that, share it with others. The hope that you receive, share it so that they can know where they can turn. Dark times don't last forever. Sometimes hope comes after a period of grieving. As you come out of those times, can people see what's causing you to soar, to run, to fly, and no longer just crawl? Truth is not written on paper tracks. It's written on the pages of our lives. And those pages become evident to people often when things are the worst around us. But in order for people to see us, our lives need to rub together with theirs. 
People can't see us if we're isolated or we spend every night by ourselves. When I was growing up in the church in the South, I guess we're in the South now, aren't we? But in, in Georgia, um, we were taught that you're in church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, infallibly. If you're a good Christian, you go to church three times a week. I'm sure you didn't know that. But that was a culture I was raised in. And when I, I came to Sevierville, Tennessee, and, and planted a church there, we wanted to break that mold. So we, we had another standard for people that we encouraged them to at least pray about. You don't have to be in here three times a week, but be here for worship. And take one time a week to be fed. A time when you're with maybe a small group or a people in the congregation who can kind of stoke the fires within you of loving Christ. Be in a situation where you're being fed, you're taught, you're learning, you're growing. But then pick one night a week when you're giving. Don't come here, go out there. Go eat at Zacchaeus' house. Go with somebody to a movie. Go out to eat. Let somebody's life rub up against yours so they begin to see the hope within you and the idea of, of setting one night a week is simply to be intentional. Just be intentional. We formed something called four-by-four four groups where we had four couples or, uh, or three couples in a single, just four groups of people come together, and each one of them would be praying for four other people, neighbors, coworkers. And the commitment was, once a month, spend time with one of those four people. Just spend time with them. Let them see Christ in you, and at some point when they ask, how come you're different? How, how come you stop and listen when nobody else does? How come you understand what I'm going through and nobody else does? Then be ready to give a reason for the hope within you. Are you prepared to share the gospel? When I was early in ministry, I went to every seminar I could on sharing the gospel. I went to Evangelism Explosion. We learned the two diagnostic questions. If you were to die tonight, go to heaven, are you sure you'd get in? Then secondly, if you were to go to heaven and God were to stop you at the door and say, well, why should I let you in? What would you say? And what you're asking is, are you depending upon works or upon Jesus Christ? And that becomes a foundation. It's important that those questions arise out of the context of our hope. Uh, I went on EE training with a, a, an elder in our church back in Chattanooga one time, and I watched as he engaged somebody out on the patio of their porch, and, and they weren't really open to hearing what he had to say. So he started yelling at them, and they got into a screaming match with each other. I thought, this is not sharing the gospel. <laughs> but if somebody asks, are you prepared to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? Maybe you've heard of the Roman road. It's a great way. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, uh, 6.23 uh, I think, am I quoting scriptures right? Yeah, 623. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we'll be saved. 
Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by using something as simple as a tool like that, you can walk somebody through what it means to know Jesus Christ and rest in Him and in Him alone for salvation. It's, it's a tremendous tool. So the point is not, you've got to use this tool or that tool. Or, the point is be intentional. God's left you with a treasure in an earthen vessel How are you going to use it? How will your life rub up against people? Maybe your time is at work. People see you 40 hours a week, and they see you pretty clearly. Or maybe you coach community sports, and people see you out on the the field, and you don't yell and scream like some coaches do, but you nurture kids and you encourage them, parents. Maybe it's at the library when your kids are uh, picking up books and you're with other families and you're reading together. I, I don't know, where, wherever you walk in life and you're with people, they get to see who you are and what motivates you. Let me uh, close maybe a, a little bit early with a challenge to you. One of the seminars I went to Back in uh, in the days when I was at, at Sevierville, the PCA had a conference on evangelism. I thought, this, this is going to be fantastic. So I went, and the, the, the leader had designed a little lapel pin, kind of intricate little pin. And he said, if you want to witness for Christ, wear this pin. And you look at it, and you think, well, what in the world is that? You know, it had all these little symbolisms in it that you could use as starting points for the gospel. When somebody sees that pin, they'll ask you, why you're wearing it. I walked away thinking, I want somebody to see Christ in me. I want them to see the hope that I have. I want them to see compassion. I want them to see something that draws them to the Savior, not just a pell pen. So let me challenge you with this and leave it with you, that when you get dressed in the morning, don't put a little pell pen or a track in your pocket. Put on Christ. Put on Christ and walk out that door. Believe me, you'll make a difference. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, I fall into old ruts. We all do. Lord, I find that any time I prepare a sermon, the first person that needs to hear it is usually me. So, Father, change us this morning. Help us to walk out of the ruts and to take a step, maybe in different directions. Help us as a congregation to be aware of those in our, around us who need the gospel. Maybe people who are new in our community who might be looking for a church and just need to see someone who reflects Christ before they say, I think I'll try that church. Oh, Father, we lay our lives before you. I ask that you'll change us through the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.